Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Currently conquering the world is Wolf Walkers, the latest film from Kilkenny animation studio Cartoon Saloon. Directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart and written by Will Collins, this stunning film, set in the 17th century, centres on the burgeoning friendship between two young girls, Robin and Maeve, one a determined hunter living and working inside the fortress wall, the other a mystical wolf walker, whose spirit becomes a wolf when she sleeps, and whose very existence is under threat from the English forces ruling the town. The film screened at the IFI during its brief reopening last December, and is now available to view on Apple TV+. The film has won a slew of awards, including the New York Film Critics Circle Award, the Los Angeles Film Critics Circle Award, and was most recently nominated for Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature. I'm very pleased to say that Tom Moore joins me now on the iFi podcast. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Tom, let's start with this awards business. I presume your mantelpiece has been reinforced multiple times at this stage, but I'm just curious what it's like to be in the middle of something like this. Obviously, there's news updates and new nominations coming in every day. Is it a lovely bonus? Is it very distracting? What is your relationship to it? This year, it's a lovely bonus, honestly. There's no, and I mean, I've been churlish in years past by complaining about having to fly around and stuff, and I only wish I was doing it this year. As much as I feel guilty about the environmental impact of traveling to these different things, it's not the same when you're doing it over Zoom. But that said, it's lovely, and it's lovely to be considered a contender. It's a, you know, fairly strong field this year, and um, it's nice to be back in the mix, you know. Yeah. What, what animated films have you been enjoying this year so far? No, I am, uh, I have to say, a fan of Soul. I really did think it was something special for mainstream animation to tackle such difficult themes and stuff like that. But then on the complete other end of things, there's a short film, uh, Genius Lockie, uh, by Adrian Mergeau, who was art director, I must admit, uh, and so a friend of Song of the Sea. But he's made a 20-minute, um, really beautiful, kind of um, melancholy study of just what it is to be a person living in the urban environment and the spirits that inhabit those environments you know and he's so influenced like his his style has become so influenced by um like you talk about soul where they have a little bit of a little bit of picasso going on in the in the jerry's now if you see genius lucky it's fully you know it's cubism expressionism it's it's miro everything all rolled into animation so i really i really do hope he gets all the way to nomination and even a win with it because i think it's a really special film Tom, when you were when you were younger and you were in college or you were starting a cartoon saloon, who were the animators and the filmmakers that were your main influences? Who were your touchstones? I think as a small kid, um, I was inspired seeing the Don Bluth movies. They they were being made in Ireland, and that made them feel a little bit closer. And they were, you know, they were virtuoso classical animation. So that would have been a big thing as a child. But then when I was in college, it was much more people like. Richard Williams or Hayao Miyazaki and um, I kind of got interested then in Eastern European animation in college as well so my kind of my, my tastes you know as, as happens for anyone in art school kind of expanded when I got to college. And we've got a, a Japanese season running on IFI at home at the moment so it's interesting to hear you say that you know Miyazaki was a touchstone because, because I, know, I know nature is often a, uh, a big theme of Miyazaki's films particularly uh, Totoro and Mononoke is that something that kind of filtered through into your own work then? 
Yeah, I do. I think there was a kinship. I mean, I was late to the party with Miyazaki, and um, I think it was um, I think it was Mononoke that uh, came. Yeah, Mononoke was released in English, and there was a lot, and it was released in um, Ireland. And I remember it on the radio, people talking about it, and I was excited for it. And I think, unless I'd accidentally seen some before and not realised it, um, that was my first Miyazaki. And yeah, I mean, it absolutely. I mean, that was 1998. And the issues it touched upon have only gotten worse and worse since. But mm. as someone who's always interested in environmentalism and stuff, it was exciting and heartening to see, you know, major animated film tackling those kind of themes, you know. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit, Tom, moving on to Wolf Walkers, about the, the genesis of the story, where the idea came from and why... I guess this was a story above any others that you were kind of interested in telling. Yeah, it's funny. Again, you, you speak to um, themes and uh, for whatever reason, that's sort of what has motivated me as a as a starting point for all of the films I've directed or co-directed. And so Ross and I just sat down and, and worked through themes that we were passionate about. And we wanted to speak to the, the polarization we were seeing happening in the world and how sometimes kids can transcend that, you know. And so that... A little bit comes from my own childhood being up in the north. I was originally from Newry, you know, and realizing as a kid that, oh, some kids are not, you're not supposed to play with, or their older brother would say, don't play with them, they're not Catholic or something. Mm. So that was kind of a theme that we wanted to speak to, but definitely the environmental and speciesism, that was a big thing. We wanted to speak to the fact that our kind of arrogance in eliminating species which you know maybe started with the colonization maybe before and thinking that we're we have dominion over nature rather than just being part of nature that needs to change and we sort of felt that these old stories from Kilkenny and you know from all over the country and a lot of indigenous cultures that these stories where man and nature are much more intertwined one doesn't have dominion over the other but they're kind of fellow travelers um, in the world and that was the sort of those were the sort of stories that would appeal appeal to us to make a kind of a final statement. So that's why we settled on the Wolfwalker stories. They're kind of called the Wolves of Ostry here in Kilkenny. And we also settled on the, the time of Cromwell because we thought, well, that was that was when there was a concerted effort to wipe out the wolves in Ireland. And we thought maybe that's when the polarization really kicked in in Ireland. And maybe that's also when we lost touch with a certain um, aspect of ourselves because the wolves were so tied up in Irish folklore and culture once they were eliminated maybe we lost something of ourselves you know and um, how many people worked on the film Tom in the end yeah I, I only lost count there's a lot of <laughs> credits you know I mean <laughs> we, had, we had production in France and in Luxembourg as well teams that we'd worked with before and in Kilkenny so I said there's about 200 all told but then there was the orchestra and, you know, sound engineers and all sorts of people, you know. So it's a long journey, like seven years from uh, starting to write it and, and do the concept art to the final, you know, finishing it there whenever it was, July. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that, that to a certain extent makes my next question redundant because I was going to ask you, what does day one on a project like this look like? Because obviously you have you have you know you're you're doing storyboarding you have a script you're doing the voice recording but is it a case that it's a very kind of organic process where people kind of migrate off one project onto another or is it kind of a steady team the whole time or you know how, how does it kind of work for yourselves 
Yeah, it's like a, a kind of telescopes, I suppose. You know, it starts fairly focused. It was just me and Ross and Will at the start. And we had a couple of concept artists, but we were just working out the story for a long time while um, Nora Toomey was directing The Breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And then slowly as that project went down, we had access to some of the talent from The Breadwinner to come and help us with storyboards. So I suppose day one, I always think of <coughs> for Wolfwalkers was when we kind of moved out of our little office that we'd spent a couple of years in trying to get the story worked out out and into the the main studio but even then we started we had about a year of about maybe six of us all working on storyboards and stuff and then it slowly grows and grows from there i'm always curious as to whether much can change when when a, when a project like this starts obviously you'll, you'll do the, the voice recordings in advance you know can somebody run into the office with a really good idea to say oh i actually thought of this or is everything kind of more or less locked in once the storyboarding is done once everything starts rolling is it is it a kind of a a more difficult ship to turn around maybe than live action would be yeah you're kind of fighting against the sense of it being a big tanker and it's hard to change so you definitely like we we took an extra eight months i think we spent nearly two years on the storyboarding because you're working with editors during the storyboard we had some amazing editors like um Darren Byrne and Darren Holmes and Richie Cody and uh, they would have been kind of cutting the film first with just scratch voices and then with the final voices and first with just scratch music and then with some demos from the composers and and from Bruno and Keila so you know what you kind of have what you try to have is a fairly locked animatic by the time you start animating but of course it's never as simple as that like that would be lovely if that was true so there's still stuff changing you're still getting notes we were definitely still sorting out the first act because we had a very late stage rewrite as we started animating the second and third act, which is always tough. And then all the way to the end, the creative decisions, as I say, the telescope. So you're less likely, especially on a small budget like we would have had compared to the American studios to completely change stuff late. But there'd still be scenes being questioned and being added like that. So um, yeah, telescoping is how I'd put it. You know, you kind of go from the, from the broad to the particular. Yeah. And I presume the advances in kind of digital animation has made that a lot easier as well, rather than just working off hand drawings. Yeah, but we're still doing hand-drawn animation. So that's another like little self-imposed restriction, you know, I mean, in CG animation, you might animate a character and then easily change the hair or change, you know, and then the the movement is still there, you know, but for us, because we are still drawing it frame by frame there's limitations to what we can change. So again, it's all about being, um, committed at before you launch a scene with an animator but there are there are scenes on the cutting room floor sadly that um i wish weren't but we didn't realize we didn't need them until they've been kind of done you can probably talk about this for an hour but i just want was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the style um of the film and i'm thinking i'm thinking in particular of how the town looks versus the forest where where the the perspective of where the town kind of rises up behind the forest but it has a kind of a kind of a flat kind of 2d look to it can you just tell us a little bit about the the kind of the thinking behind that and 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 how you came up with that kind of perspective yeah i'll try and be brief i mean it, it that perspective is something we've been playing with but in previous movies but for this we were looking at maps and woodcut prints from the time that seemed to evoke a certain mindset they were kind of uh, cutting into wood and it was kind of aggressive and the maps were very um you know, everything was being boxed off. So we kind of thought it was interesting to show that the landscape anywhere that it's been colonised has become kind of, you know, squared away and and uh, two-dimensional. And then where we have much more three-dimensionality and much more fluidness and scratchiness is the forest. The forest is like watercolour blobs and pencil sketches and kind of potential, whereas the town is very boxed in, you know. 
And then you have that contrast of the colours then as well, where, you know, you have that those beautifully rich greens in the forest where the town is kind of darker and a lot more grey. Yeah, those are all like just visual language stuff. We had, um, when we were in college, there was a lot of stuff that I loved about animation that I felt isn't used as much as it should be, especially in CG where they're constantly chasing realism and, you know, getting like live action cinematographers in to try and make it look like it was shot in film. I actually think animation has a lot more freedom because you can go much further with the visual language. You know, in a movie, you might grade it a bit desaturated or something to make it, you know, a bit downbeat. But with animation, you you know, you've got the you've got the entire palette and the whole history of visual art to, to play with, you know. Yeah, we were watching, um, we were rewatching, I should say, uh, The Secret of Kells um, the other evening. And that scene with the Viking invasion um, is really striking. And it's quite frightening, actually. I mean, I was, it's like, well, it's, it, there's, there's a lot. And I just wonder from, from a tone point of view, when, you know, you, you, children are your central character, how do you approach that in relation to, you know, uh, you know our old friend Mild Peril? Like, how, how do you make sure that everything is, is, is going to be appropriate or that the tone is not going to be overbearing, essentially, for kids? Yeah, and I mean, tone is really important, but I do think that, you know, my sister's, uh, I think she's got four kids and she talks about how, you know, feeling secure isn't just always having a permanent smile, you know, feeling secure is knowing that you can deal with stuff, you know, and that's part of childhood, learning that you can deal with things and you know, hearing stories about children dealing with stuff kind of gives you some kind of a template. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that's important and it's always been part of kids' stories. But our, you know, our mileage varies, you know, and I think some of the movies I watched as a kid were quite dark when I revisit them, whether it was Never Ending Story or Dark Crystal or even like Don Bluth movies like The Secret of Name or The Land Before Time, they dealt with some heavy stuff. So I think that is important in, in kids' stuff, but I do think tone is very important too. And there's something about hand-drawn animation that gives you the opportunity to be a little bit more have a lighter touch I always talk about like the Roald Dahl books that were they were quite dark but the Quentin Blake illustrations were so whimsical that it gave a little bit of a, a lighter touch to the stuff he was writing about yeah you can really see that I read, I read the witches and thought it was great crack and I saw the movie and was absolutely terrified in the 80s or 90s whenever it came out so i think it's a i think it's a constant line you tread there's no point making stuff that's just kind of sappy and and you know electronic babysitting for parents and on the other hand you don't want to make something that's traumatizing either you know so i've been learning that i think from secret accounts and trying to get that balance right since then yeah, and funny, I, I will be talking with Durfa Kelly later on the show, and we mentioned Coraline, which again is a film that, you know, is, is it works really well in animation, but would be a lot more frightening if it was actually a live action film. I think so, yeah. There's this, this really interesting thing with animation where you can kind of um, really get sucked into the story and really believe in it, but there's always that little distance because you know you're looking at drawings or puppets or whatever. Um, what I thought was particularly striking, um, Tom, about Wolf Walkers was the voice casting. And I, I particularly love Simon McBurney um, as Cromwell. I thought he was great. And Maria Doyle Kennedy as Maul. It's such an important part of the film and the process um, for a film that essentially, you know, that doesn't exist on the screen yet. Do you have a very set idea in your head of how characters sound? Or do you wait to hear kind of who, who comes forward or who's suggested to you? Yeah, I would say we do have a fair lot of scratch recording and stuff and then what you try and do is forget that and allow some of the talented assignment to bring what he has to bring to it you know i think the main thing we wanted with cromwell was for him not to be too cartoonish um and simon was really you know brought a gravitas to it which was great 
Um, and the same, you know, it's the kind of the same. The kids kind of come in and it's almost hard to remember how we imagined them before because they took such ownership of it, especially Eva Whitaker. I mean, Honor was absolutely amazing and totally professional, but almost as we expected her to be because she mm-hmm. was so, you know, experienced and all like that. We were just feeling lucky we got her. But with Eva, there was a little bit of a question mark because she hadn't done much before and she was so young. I think she was eight or nine. Wow. She just, yeah, she owned the character. And I think by the second or third recording session, she was kind of telling us what Maeve would do and probably more <laughs> than we were telling her, you know, which was great. Yeah, and it's a, that's the thing, and you know, it's, it's it's in the design as well. But that combination of she's so you love her straight away, like she's just so relatable, and you're just on her side, and, and she's such a brilliant character. Um, and I think so much of that comes from the voice. My granddaughter decided the other day she wasn't going to wear pants or leggings anymore. She wanted to have just like dirty bare legs, like <laughs> like I'm Maeve, I'm a wolf walker. So I was like, glad I inspired her a bit. <laughs> but I bet that made you popular. <laughs> yeah, not with her parents, not with my son. <laughs> Uh, Tom, what's next for Cartoon Saloon? Okay, Cartoon Saloon is busy. We're doing a feature of Puff and Rock, which is um, narrated by Chris O'Dowd again, and he did our, our TV show for little kids, and that's lovely. It's kind of dealing with climate refugees in a gentle way for little kids. Um, all the puffins from other islands that can't live there anymore because of climate change are arriving on Puff and Rock, and the children puffins have to make room for these new arrivals, which is a, a nice story, I think, for our times. And Nora's deep in production of My Father's Dragon, which is a feature for Netflix. And I think there's a press release going out soon, so I won't spoil too much about it, but um, I'm excited for that project. And we also have um, a really exciting series in production for Apple. Um, Again, you know, mixing up a lot of mythology and adventure and stuff. And it's one of the first times I think we've had a chance to do a serial rather than a series where a story gets told over multiple episodes. So I'm excited for that too. And we mentioned about, you know, the, the, the theme of nature running through the films. Is that something that you think is going to continue in your work? My work, personally, I doubt I'll move away from it because it is continues to be something I'm very concerned about and stuff. Um, but I put no, you know, imposition on the other directors and stuff in the studio. They kind of, you know, we have ideas that they might pursue and then we see what they do with them, you know. Well, Tom, congratulations again on Wolf Walkers. It's a, it's a stunning piece of work and best of luck in the coming weeks and months for nominations and nominations to come. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks to the IFI and everything. I mean, great support over the years and we love it. So we hope it's open again soon. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks very much for your time. Slan.
Dervla Kelly is a designer, illustrator, colourist and comic book maker based in Dublin. Her beautiful work has appeared both in the Irish Independent and the Irish Times and online at dervlala.com. And she joins me now to talk through some of her favourite animated films. Dervla, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Dervla, we're in the midst of a Japanese season on iFi at Home, so we might kick off with two of your choices uh, that come from that beautiful country. Uh, tell us a little bit about the tale of Princess Kaguya. It's a Studio Ghibli movie, but I think it's one of the maybe slightly less known Studio Ghibli movies, um, which I went to see in the cinema years ago and was just like completely blown away by how gorgeous it is. Like, it's a stunning, really sad movie. So it's based on a, uh, a Japanese folktale, which is the tale of the bamboo cutter. This older man who's, who cuts bamboo trees for a living uh, finds a child inside a bamboo tree, this tiny little princess who kind of morphs into a baby takes her home to his wife who you know says they should raise the child together and then the child keeps kind of growing in in quick spurts so in a matter of a few days she's turned into this young girl and then the bamboo cutter is convinced that she's you know some kind of celestial princess and he finds gold and he finds these beautiful clothing in in the forest so he wants to kind of treat her that way and treat her like a princess so he takes her to the city and has her trained to kind of be a, a noble woman but ultimately it ends up with her being kind of more and more trapped by like the confines of this and by the society and it's a really really sad story it's just this this girl who wants to be kind of young and free and live out her life with her friends in the forest, but is take, taken away from nature and put on display is well, sort of put on display. She's actually hidden away, but rumors of her beauty spread through the land and she has all, has all these um, suitors coming to, to ask for her hand in marriage, but they've never even seen her. So it's it's kind of um, like a kind of a feminist fable, really, about, you know, the, the trappings that women kind of end up having to go through and having their freedom taken away from them kind of in the name of making them happy. So it's a, it's a, it's a stunning little film. Uh, yeah. Really, really sad. Really, really, really sad. Though, like, I remember going to see this in cinema and like absolutely bawling by the end of it, uh, and coming out quite angry. Like, coming out quite angry at, at the father and, and some other kind of characters in it as well. It's it's just stunningly rendered. It's in this. It's traditionally drawn. I think it was the most expensive film that um, uh, I think that Ghibli had made at the time. That Studio Ghibli had made. Um, yeah, it's the most expensive Japanese film ever. Well, there we go. <laughs> and you can see why, because it's it, it's done in these kind of traditional brush style inks. And like, it looks it looks sort of deceptively simple, but it's so meticulous and so kind of perfectly crafted that you can just see the care that went into it. And it, because they're telling this, you know, thousand year old story, it really suits the quiet nature of that to have this more traditional style of, of animation based on more traditional style of Japanese drawing. Um, but the reason that I that I put it in as a movie to talk about today was there's, there's there's this one scene in it which I come back to again and again like I've only watched the movie once fully through I think but this particular scene is really really inspiring to me because it's she has this moment of kind of just where it all becomes too much for her and she runs away and she's trapped in these kind of layers and layers of clothing and she she throws the clothing kind of away from her and as she's running the line art itself kind of starts to disintegrate like it becomes these really loose brush strokes and it's just purely expressive like abstract you can barely make out that it's a person. The moon is just kind of these multi-layered scribbles and it's so effective in getting across like her emotional breaking point because it, it's using the medium, you know, the brushes and, and, and of animation itself just to kind of really convey that desperation. And it's such it's such a gorgeous sequence. You can you can actually, I think you can watch just that scene on YouTube, but it's worth watching the whole movie because it, you know, it builds up to it quite well. It's quite early on actually in the movie, which uh, I didn't, I remembered it being later because it seems like such a climax, but it's a, a beautiful scene that I, I come back to again and again for inspiration. You mentioned that the, there's a kind of a different style to the brushwork um, and the inks that they use. Does it, does it look very different to kind of a traditional anime film or do you still get that sense of that? Um, it's very recognisably Japanese, for sure. 
but it, it is distinct. I think it's a very, it looks quite different from a lot of other Studio Ghibli work. It's more kind of pared back and naturalistic and it, it has a very watercolor look, like even in the scenes of the forest, like you're, it's it's quite um, bare a lot of the time. Like the, the edges of, of the frame will be, you know, white a, a lot of the time and the lines aren't even black, they're kind of gray. And so it's really soft. It has this really soft, almost charcoal kind of look to it a lot of the time. It's, it's really, really beautiful, really beautiful. Stunning. Um, you also mentioned, um, we're going to stick with Studio Ghibli for your next choice. You mentioned that Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle is a top comfort rewatch for you. So tell us a little bit about the story behind Howl and why it's such a go-to for you. I, I love it so much. <laughs> and I know I'm not alone in this because I, you know, I, I'm always seeing people posting it on Twitter as just a favorite movie and a comfort movie and that. And I, I don't necessarily think that it's the best Miyazaki movie because it's, you know, it's it's not as good as, as say, Princess Mononoke or Spirited Away. And it's, it's kind of odd and kind of disjointed, but it's just a really cozy film for me. Like, it's a lot of different things. It's kind of disjointed in a way because there's, um, you know, there's a romance story in there. There's a fantasy story in there. There's some time travel thrown in. There's anti-war themes. <laughs> based on the novel by um, Diana Wynne-Jones. But yeah, I just I just absolutely love this movie. So it's about a, a, a girl who's a hat maker. She's quite, you know, she sees herself as being quite plain and, and not very pretty compared to the other girls. And then she gets this curse put on her that turns her into an old woman. And so with kind of nowhere to turn, she heads out into the wasteland to find this wizard named Hal and to take refuge with him in his moving castle, which is this cool, like hodgepodge walking mechanical beast looking thing. And so she kind of finds her place there and helps him. There's just these gorgeous scenes in it. Like there's this, there's a sequence where he, where how the wizard makes Sophie like a place for, like he takes her to this kind of place for her basically. And it's just this beautiful meadow with flowers. And it's a really like, I don't dreamy kind of sequence. And my other favorite scene, it actually is, is it's really simple. It's just the scene where they make breakfast and it's the best looking eggs I've ever seen. <laughs> Studio Ghibli is, I think, quite known for like doing really gorgeous food animation and uh, the breakfast scene. I just love how it slices up the bread and puts it in the pan and it's being cooked by, you know, the, the fire demon Calcifer, who's so the pan is sitting you know, on top of him and he's kind of the flames are licking at the eggs and the bacon and in the pan. It's just really I don't know, wholesome or something, <laughs> but it's a really enjoyable movie. Uh, the tale of uh, Princess Kaguya and Hell's Moving Castle um, are available to stream on Netflix, as I think are most of the Studio Ghibli films. I think they yeah, did a deal yeah. recently, and they all, there's about 21 or so, so uh, plenty to watch there on Netflix. And uh, Princess Kaguya and Howl were both nominated for the Best Animated Film at the Oscars. They lost out to Big Hero 6 and Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, respectively. But your next choice actually won the Best Animated Feature, and I have to say it's one of my favourite films, or was one of my favourite films of 2018, and that is the brilliant Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse Tell us about this one. I was, uh, I put out on, on Twitter yesterday, actually, I was just kind of out of curiosity asking people what their favorite movie is. And I know a lot of my Twitter mutuals are comics people. And so many people said this movie, which I think is really interesting because it came out so recently and so many people were listing this movie and not like a childhood movie as their favorite animated film. And I think it's one of like, the best superhero movies that's come out possibly ever. Um, which, in, you know, at a time of a lot of superhero movies, I think it's really cool that one of the best ones is, is one that's animated. But yeah, it's just it's just it's just great. It's such a an interesting experimental little film. The styles of animation in it are really fascinating. Like there's so much going on visually. Like it's a real love letter to the comics because you have these these little details that they bring in. You know the captions and the little speech bubbles and sound effects that that kind of bounce off of the characters as they as they hit into things. And you know it'll do the whip effect of of the, the spider web coming out. But it does it in a way that I think could risk being gimmicky but it's done with such love and not parody that it works throughout and so because the the movie's about these different 
Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, you know, heroes from different realities all kind of meeting together. Um, they each kind of have their own signature animation styles, which then are meshed together while they all kind of are interacting in the same scenes. And it's it's a really cool thing to do, like to not kind of be too tied down to one style. So you've got, you know, the the Peter Porker pig character who's really kind of old Looney Tune style. And then the um, Nicolas Cage playing the noir Spider-Man who's all black and white. And uh, and there's the, the anime style, you know, one as well. And these are all kind of sharing a scene together, which is just such a fun thing to do. And then on top of that as well, I was I was reading that, you know, they were really interested in kind of looking at the kind of the interesting things that happen in printed comics where you get kind of errors and mistakes that happen sometimes. You get little offsets and lines going the wrong place. And they wanted to take that kind of element, the texture of that on, onto the screen, which to me is really interesting because I think, well, well, 3D animation is really cool. Sometimes it can lean towards being a little bit too smooth. And so it's nice to see something so textured and so disjointed. And I think they they like they wrote loads of new, you know, kind of software and all this to, to actually make this happen. So it's quite innovative and really experimental in places. But I mean, the, the, the thing about, that I loved about it is that, and the word I always connect with it is the word kinetic, because it feels like just as soon as the film starts, it just never stops the whole time. I think you could watch this film five, six times and find different things to look at each each time, you know? And it builds up to this whole like, incredible climax of, of um, where the kind of realities are all meshing together and sort of imploding and exploding and that. And I remember seeing this in cinema and like almost zoning out with how much, just how much color there was on screen um, and how much, you know, was coming out. Like it felt a bit like um, the scene in uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, you know, the Stargate scene where it's just these colors and lights streaming yeah. out. But in a way that really works and in a way that doesn't lose the narrative thread of, you know, what's going on during. Because it's also it's also like a, a lovely narrative running through it, too. of You know, a kid who wants to follow in the footsteps of his hero, but doesn't really know how to do it and has to find a way to be himself to do that. Like you've got Miles trying to step into the role of Spider-Man, but he's wearing like a shop bought Spider-Man costume to do it the whole time until he figures out his own way. Um, so you've got this like lovely story going going through it and then yeah kinetic is actually a perfect word for it like there's just so much going on visually it's such a feast i i come out of that movie actually i was at the time i was working on a comic um called queen of bad dreams uh with a writer named danny lore and i came out of the uh the, the cinema went home texted danny and i was like have you seen spider-verse because i think that we should put some of what was on that because <laughs> we were also trying to do some stuff where it was like dreamscapes and you know where there was wild and it totally influenced how I, the direction that i went with that because it was it was really cool to see how much you could pack onto you know a screen and still have it work and um, it's uh, stunning it's a stunning movie it's definitely one to go back to i think again and again and you know dig so much dig so much out of and you know it's it's just cool like it's just a cool movie yeah and even talk and even talking about it now i actually just want to go and watch it straight away i think what's really interesting as well i was just looking at the credits yesterday when it won the oscar um five people were credited and five people won an oscar for it and i just i thought that spoke to the authenticity of it as in there are so many different styles in it it wasn't a case of one person or two people directing it it was a case of let's get the people in who can kind of really speak to this th- these different styles yeah absolutely and and it it feels collaborative and it feels exciting like it, it feels like people who were really invested in in making something interesting and you know not just kind of taking the way that things have been done before but really inventing new ways to do stuff and i think it takes a lot of passion and love to make that work and you can see that come across in that movie which is why i think it's why it's so beloved you know by so many people that i know who work who work in comics and and animation it, you know despite being such a recent thing it really it really garnered a lot of love for just being quite genuine 
Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is available also to stream on Netflix, but uh, just wait until the end of the podcast before you run off like me to go and watch it. Um, Dervla, we're going to do the next two together as they're both stop-motion animations. Um, The first, again, was a film that was very kind of critically acclaimed when it came out, and that's Henry Selleck's Coraline, which is as creative and beautiful as it is creepy. It's based on the Neil Gaiman novel. There's people out there who absolutely love it, and you're one of them. I am indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I saw this actually at the, I think it was at the Jemison Film Festival that I first went to see this. Um, cause Neil Gaiman was there to open it, which was really cool. Cause I was a fan of the book as well. And uh, it's always nice when, when a movie stays true to the, the book, but also brings something else to it. I think it was, it was the first film from Leica. Um, again, it's just such a visual little treat. Like I think that's, that's the lovely thing about stop motion is that, you know, you get that sense of everything having been made and, and being in like this miniature set. And so there's always more to look at and always more little background details to take in. Um, but I also love it because it's so creepy. And there's there's something about creepy things that are potentially aimed at kids, which I find kind of fascinating. Um, like I'm, I'm not really very good at horror. Like I don't manage a lot of horror movies, but I remember even being a kid and being, like I was terrified of horror, like proper horror movies, but I kind of loved when there were movies that were horror, but with like a little bit softened. So the kind of you know like James and the Giant Peach, same director actually, um, and Night Before Christmas, you know, so the Henry Selleck kind of movies that were creepy but manageably creepy. Yeah, <laughs> were, were nice because it was like it's like here's some kind of slightly gently wrapped you know dark fantasy, movie, but still terrifying. Like the whole concept of you know so so if, if anyone hasn't seen it, that Coraline moves to this new house with her parents who are ignoring her essentially and she, she's got no friends around and the house is all quite dull and then she finds a portal in the house to this other house which looks like her house but it's you know it's it's more exciting and more colorful and there's there's you know really great food and kind of magical things happening but there's another mother and the other mother is is giving her all the food she wants and giving her everything she wants and treating her supposedly better than than her actual mother but she also has buttons for eyes and, and is just so menacing even when she's being nice that you're kind of waiting for it to turn bad the whole time and of course it gradually gets you know the the other world starts to seem creepier and creepier but uh the i've never seen a movie that makes buttons um so terrifying (laughs) yeah And, uh, and it makes me wonder what can animation do that live action can't because i'm thinking that if caroline had been a live action film and you had a character that had buttons for eyes that you were looking at a 15, 16, 18 certificate for that film. Whereas with this, it's... It's it's kind of cushioned, isn't it? When it's like, there's an, um, there's something a bit more naturalistic about it. You know, a puppet having buttons for eyes, it's still creepy, but it's not quite to the level of body horror that it would be if, you know, if it was, if it was live action. And you, yeah, there's, there's, it's kind of interesting too, because like the whole opening sequence of, of the movie is cutting patterns and sewing. And so it's like making the kind of the Caroline uh, doll, which, which features in the movie, which it's, it's interesting because it's also, you know, sort of how those things are actually made because it's, you know, you're, there, there is an actual Caroline puppet playing the Caroline character. It's definitely one of those movies that I think works best in the form that it's in because it would oh, yeah. be too creepy if it was live action. And I think <laughs> if it was like 3D animation, it wouldn't quite have the same texture to it either. Like there's something about the movement of stop motion that's a little bit kind of, you know, it's it's sort of slightly stilted or... There's that, there's that kind of extra layer of unreality to it. That's it, yeah. And I think that's that's really played up in the movie because you have, in the way that the, the colours are done in the movie, the her, so her real world is quite dull in, in colour and it's, you know, it's, it's a bit kind of grungier and 
not as well lit and that and then when she goes into the fantastical world initially everything gets lit up and and it's you know beautiful and everything is quite dreamy and fantastic but as the movie goes on and as the other world starts to seem creepier they do something quite interesting i think which is that they rather than the colors getting like drained out of the other world the colors get amped up in the other worlds like they go more neon and more weird and like brighter and more saturated the puppets of you know the other mother it, it gets more distorted and so things kind of take on this whole different form and because it's stop motion and because it's puppets you kind of get that uh, that sense of things actually morphing and actually changing which is really interesting and like moving in the wrong way and they're still the same things you've seen earlier it's just that now they're being used differently so um, actually the other interesting thing that I love about Coraline was um, it was a movie that I saw in 3D in the cinema and it's one of the only times that I would actually recommend seeing a movie in 3D <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of 3D movies. Like it's, you know, I, I don't think it works a lot of the time, but with Coraline, they, when they were filming it, they shot it with the 3D in mind. Um, so they would take a shot and then they would move the camera very slightly and take another shot. So the stop motion was actually done like at the filming stage, they integrated the 3D. Um, so it's, it works quite naturalistically if you, if you see a 3D screening of it. And rather than things coming out at you, it's really about depth. Um, so it's, you get this real sense of like when Caroline's going through the tunnel, that the tunnel is receding behind her. And it was, it was a really interesting kind of cinema experience actually to see that like proper like 3D being used quite well and not just kind of as an afterthought. The second stop motion film that you've picked out is from a director who is very comfortable both with animation and with live action and that's Wes Anderson his adaptation of the Roald Dahl classic Fantastic Mr. Fox with the very smooth George Clooney taking the lead for anyone who hasn't seen it would you say would you know it was based on a Roald Dahl book? I think you would I mean it's it's definitely its own thing but I think it's actually a, a quite a good fit I mean the opening movie or the opening uh shot of the movie they they bring in the Roald Dahl book so they're they're definitely not shying away from that being the origins um and there's a lot uh like I so I loved the book as a kid I was a big Roald Dahl fan uh, and I was a big fan of foxes so obviously <laughs> I love Fantastic Mr. Fox and I when I saw this movie I so I, I I really liked what it brought from the book to, uh, to the screen it had like the songs that the children sing about um, Bogus Bunsen being the the mean farmers um and it has those songs being kind of sung by like they sound like kind of 70s schoolyard British children singing them which was sort of perfect um, for the that Roald Dahl atmosphere but at the same time it's it's very much a Wes Anderson movie like it 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 has his kind of like quirks and signature stuff all over it and it's it, it makes sense as well for Wes Anderson to do a stop-motion movie because he's he's you know so about precision and detail and the like the background stuff and the production you know when you translate that to stop-motion everything that you see on on set has to be you know uh, meticulously crafted just by that's the nature of stop motion um so it, it makes sense that that's that's something that Wes Anderson would do but he I think he he definitely brings his own sense of humor uh to it but I think it still retains a lot of the Roald Dahl the original kind of you know essence of it well I love it it's just it's a it's probably not for everyone yeah and it has a great soundtrack as well it has the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones in there so it's got a... it's, it's it's brilliant like I, I kind of love that he takes Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is, you know, a very simple story of a fox robbing some farmers and then getting a, a bit over his head. And it, and it turns it into this sort of 70s crime caper, uh, which is added to by the fact that you've got George Clooney playing Mr. Fox and he does this whole Danny Ocean, you know, <laughs> thing where like he's hitting the three farmers and it's hitting three casinos. And I think there's a, there's quite a lot. If you watch that movie a few times, I think there's quite a lot of references, you know, peppered throughout that are easy to miss. I'm fairly certain he's fairly heavily referencing um, the Disney 1970s Robin Hood um, as well, which of course was another Fox 
rogue character because there's a, there's at one point the song uh speaking of the soundtrack uh, the song from robin hood plays while the the family's kind of just uh, you know having a like a picnic outside their tree and the love song from from disney robin hood is playing on the radio which is the love song between two foxes um and then later on in the movie uh fox and and his wife are having a discussion beside a waterfall which again i think is referencing the disney movie uh because that's quite an iconic scene from that movie there's a lot to kind of there's i think there's a lot of like little you know background details and references and you know if you pause it at any point there's probably something interesting happening yeah, yeah. It, i mean and it is kind of you know it, it's unmistakably wes anderson you know it's a wes anderson film just without humans the film just looks really really terrific uh caroline and the fantastic mr fox are both available to stream from google play and itunes and i'll also give a shout out to wes anderson's other stop motion film isle of dogs which came out a couple of years ago which is also fantastic and you can rent that from amazon and google play at uh, dervla to finish we're going to go full circle and we spoke to tom moore early in the show and you've picked out the second cartoon saloon film song of the sea uh, which was also nominated for an oscar the Secret of Kells and Wolfwalkers are based mainly around forests and forests outside walls, but this is a more blue-hued piece of work. Mm, yeah, what a stunning movie, um, Song of the Sea. It's just, it's just so gorgeous. Like, I think you could pause that movie at any, on any, you know, frame, and you've got, you've got like a ready-made scene from a from a children, like a beautiful children's picture book. Like, it's, it's just beautifully, beautifully illustrated. Um, and I think that one of the things that's really striking about it, it's it's the the backgrounds. Like there's all these kind of flattened perspective backgrounds, you know, or there's there's maps and beautiful like spirals drawn into rocks and faces drawn into rocks, and it's it's just it's just stunning. And I think like I think what I love about this movie is it's you know it's based on kind of um, you know Selkie mythology and Irish sort of folklore, and 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 then it's also got this very Irish look to it, but without being like you know twee about it or without kind of. Mm-hmm feeling like it's like it's forced kind of Irishness it just feels very naturalistically like an Irish movie and the way that that's kind of like incorporated into these you know beautifully painted backgrounds throughout you know and all the different scenes it kind of makes it feel like you know the mythology that they're talking about really is part of the fabric of the country which I which I quite like like it's it's just everything there's folklore to be found in all these different places which is which is really cool uh song of the sea is available to rent from google play itunes and lots of other places so do check it out before we finish Dervla, what are you working on at the moment where can we see your work uh mostly comics at the minute so i'm working on a uh, a book called i walk with monsters which is uh published by vault um and another uh called uh, pantomime um the story of uh, uh basically deaf kids doing crime <laughs> wow well, you can find I Walk With Monsters and Pantomime at comicsology.eu and Big Bang Comics. Dervla Kelly, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. That's all from this week's iFi podcast. My thanks to Tom Moore and Dervla Kelly. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.